All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Rick Mayberry. He's back with me before we pick up where we left off with Rick uh, on whatever happened to Penny Candy. I do want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show economically viable. Uh, they are Eurostar Gold Corp and Liberty Silver Corp. Well, Rick, when we went to the break, um, we were talking about uh, debasing of currency. We talked about uh, uh, really counterfeiting, and you're suggesting, uh, well, not suggesting, you're say, stating essentially that the government is counterfeiting. That's We're doing exactly what, uh, you know, somebody might do out of their garage in, in Brooklyn uh, and uh, start printing and, and, and distributing uh, paper, uh, looks like real currency, real coin, legal tender, and, and spreading it out and buying things with it, and, and really it's a form of theft. And as you explained so well in Whatever Happened to Penny Candy, that's exactly uh, what the government is doing. Uh, is it legal for the government to do that? Well, um, the Constitution says no state shall make anything the gold or silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And um, it's, it's very clear there that the founders were afraid of money that isn't gold or silver because obviously the paper stuff can be created on a printing press. Um, and so um, what has happened is that, or for some reason I don't really understand, they didn't put in there that the federal government also had to abide by that. Mm. Um, and so there's a loophole there. Uh, wow. Again, you know, nobody admires the founders more than I do, but they mm -hmm. were human and they made mistakes. And sure. One of the loopholes they left in the Constitution was to allow the federal government to uh, create um, um, phony money, essentially. Now, there are people, um, uh, one gentleman named Edwin Vieira, I think sure. his name is, Okay, he argues that if you look at the law very carefully, you'll find that it is covered uh, somewhere in U.S. law that the government has to use only gold and silver mm -hmm. or gold and silver certificates that are backed by gold and silver as um, as as uh, legal money. Um, but but those arguments, while they probably are true. Um, how many people can really, uh, you know, understand the legal side of it or want to take the time to do that? Yeah. Uh, one of the beauties of the American Constitution is that it was written uh, not for lawyers and politicians and judges, but for ordinary people. And, and the Constitution is in language that the typical person uh, ought to be able to understand. Um, and so 
you can go in there and, and pretty easily read the Constitution and see the places where the government is violating it. Because mm-hmm. It was written so that the ordinary people could tell when the government is violating it. Um, uh, and, you know, now we have the fact that in the government-controlled schools, the reading levels are going down, down, down. Um, that's part of some conspiracy. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, who knows? But it's happening. Yeah, it's happening. Whether right. it's intentional or not, it's happening, and it's making people uh, ignorant of the law, uh, mm-hmm. the supreme law of the land. Yeah. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, back in the 1830s, I think it was, uh, he was roaming around America studying the Americans. Uh, he pointed out that, and he probably exaggerated to some extent, but he said, you know, every American has a copy of the Constitution in his back pocket. Mm-hmm. And whenever any kind of political subject comes up, everybody whips out their constitutions and they start reading through it to find mm-hmm. out uh, what the, the actual situation ought to be. Um, and, uh, you know, suddenly we're living in a time when when people find the Constitution hard to read. Now, why is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they find it hard to read. And uh, the other thing is that, uh, you know, there was a great quote, actually, in your book uh, from John Quincy Adams uh, pertaining to economics that I think also pertains to the, to the law. Uh, John Quincy Adams stated uh, in 1829, all the perplexities, confusion, and distress in America arise not from the defects in their constitution or confederation, not from want of honor or virtue so much as from downright ignorance of the nature of coin, credit, and circulation, end of quote. Now, that seems to me that ignorance uh, of that uh, and ignorance of the law but then, you know, we were talking earlier about how the uh, Keynesians and the econometricians have to make economics very, very confusing and difficult to understand. It seems to me that the lawyers have done that with the plain, forward, simple English that was in the Constitution, have they not? Because, you know, I know initially that the, that the, uh, you know, the courts tried to determine if, they, if it wasn't clear in the Constitution or in the law, what did Jefferson mean? And they'd go back and read the things that he wrote to try to deter- get inside of his head. And now they don't even do that. They just say, well, Jefferson is, uh, you know, and, and the people, the founders, are irrelevant because the times have changed and so forth. But it seems to me a lot of this is just engineered by the ruling elite or by people that want to believe what they want to believe. And so they create economics that suit their purpose or they create the law or they uh, circumvent uh, or... Um, do something to the law that, that is anything other than what the original intent was. Yeah, an interesting point is I'm, I'm seeing more and more references um, coming out of uh, the left side of the political spectrum mm-hmm. um, that, um, you know, asking the question, should we be uh, tied to this ancient document that's more than 200 years old, right. uh, that's out mm-hmm. of date and all that, you know, mm-hmm. well, my marriage is 45 years old, and if somebody said, uh, I'm not supposed to be tied to that anymore because it's old, <laughs> I don't think I'd agree with them. Well, I think a lot of people probably do say that about marriage these days, but that's another well, that's issue. <laughs> <laughs> that's another issue. I mean, I guess it gets down to, you know, you get back, you were talking about these basic, those two basic issues about how we should treat each other. You know, do do what you're what you promised to do, what the contract is, and when you got married, you made a contract to stay married for the rest of your life, and and then don't encroach on other people's uh, other people's rights. And 
it seems to me that that's you know that that is so basic and yet uh all of these sort of uh perversions of the constitution perversions of economics are ways that are used by people in power to encroach on other people's rights to and to get away from uh from what they've agreed to do yeah, you know, we had an interesting uh, example of it here just a few weeks ago with the Supreme Court decision on Obamacare. Right. Um, the um, essentially what the Supreme Court decided was that the government can do anything they want to us as long as they call it a tax. Right. Um, now, so you've got people who who realize that the Constitution gives the government the power to tax, and and so they're. Whenever they want to do anything to us now, um, all they have to do is call it a tax, and they can get away with it legally. Yeah, yeah that that is really frightening in a way, isn't it? Uh, but mm-hmm. but on the on the other hand, it, it goes with what Alana Mercer was talking about: the right to take our property ultimately ends in a in the right to take our lives. When you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? They can oh, take absolutely. Our, yeah, you know, so our, if, you, our, if you don't believe it. Talk to somebody who lived in the Ukraine during Soviet times. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's get to some of the basics of uh, of coins and and money. Uh, you talk about debasing of currency. You talk about um, groves uh, in or grooves, I guess, in in coins. Uh, what was that all about, and why were there grooves in, in coins? Uh, we, we've had them in our own day, yet we've had grooves. We do have grooves yet still, don't we, in quarters and dimes. Why is that? Um, there are grooves in the dimes, uh, quarters, and half dollars to make them look like the old silver coins, uh, which were 90% silver. Mm-hmm. And the reason the grooves are on there, and this was invented long ago, back in the Middle Ages, the reason the, the grooves are on the edges of the coins, and they're not on um, pennies, which are were copper, or nickels, which are nickel, uh, but they are on the, the original silver coins, is because people, one way of counterfeiting is to uh, take a, uh, a knife or some other blade and, and scrape the edges off of the coin uh-huh. so that you get this little pile of silver or gold shavings. Mm-hmm. And then um, those can be melted down and minted into new coins. Mm-hmm. And uh, governments used to um, uh, do that all the time. And that's you know, in whatever happened to penny candy, I try to use a lot of historical examples of these sorts of behaviors that governments have. And it was the Roman government that was really big on this. They they um, just started scraping the edges off of the coins, which which left the coin just a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. uh, but that would give them a little pile of gold or silver to mint into new coins. And so um, they were able to just take these newly minted coins go out and buy something with them. And um, as time went on, you know, people would notice that the coins were getting smaller. And uh, one of the defensive uh, tactics that that were developed was to um, make the coins have these grooves on the edge. Mm-hmm. So if somebody scraped the edge of the coin, the um, individual who was accepting the coin could tell. Well, this yeah, coin because the groove was on the edges, yeah. Um, and so they could tell some of the metal was missing. Um, and it, it was not done uh, in the United States on copper or nickel coins because nobody scraped those off. Those are base metals that aren't worth very much, and so they were not scraped, and therefore no grooves were required. Uh, when, you know, one of the things that, that 
that whatever happened to Penny Candy does is it begins by having a person look at your money, just reach in your pocket and yeah. pull out some money and look at the characteristics of that money. And a lot of the characteristics of that money are related to trying to stop governments from counterfeiting. <laughs> Folks, it's uh, the book is called Whatever Happened to... Whatever happened to Penny Candy? And I'm going to give you the number that you can call to order this book, 800-509-5400, 800-509-5400, or go to Richard Mayberry. That's M-A-Y-B-U-R-Y. I believe I've spelled your name right. It doesn't uh, matter. It works either way. Okay, mayberry.com. Uh, okay, so we have the grooves. Now the, as you pointed out, the Romans clipped the coins. They scraped the coins. They took it, the, the metal, the gold that was in there, or the silver, I suppose, and melted it down and then made new coins, and that's how they debased the currency at that time. Uh, but it didn't work. What, ha- what happened finally then? Why did this uh, ultimately fail for Rome? Well, the same reason it's, it's failing all over the world today and has, and has ever since then is, is that as you increase the supply of coins, you reduce the value of each individual coin and prices rise to compensate for that. And so the, the Romans found themselves in a rather severe inflation. Um, and then they enacted uh, wage and price controls to try to keep the, the prices and wages from rising. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, now you might remember the U.S. government tried that in the early 70s. And yeah. it failed because they kept on creating new money. Right. Um, and that's what happened to the Romans. Um, the prices kept going up. So what the Roman government, in its infinite wisdom, tried to do is establish wage and price controls, and, and uh, these, the penalties could be you know, very high for that. You could spend a long time in prison for mm-hmm. charging more than they wanted you to charge for, let's say, a, a loaf of bread. Yeah. Well, and, you, um, and you might have to charge more for that loaf of bread if it cost you more to produce it, or else you'd go out of business. Yes, that's right. That's right. But it didn't matter. You'd still wouldn't matter. You'd still have to you right. know, go to prison. So people realized that, let's say the bread makers realized that if they weren't allowed to raise their prices, uh, they were going to be uh, going broke, and so they just quit producing the bread, and uh, Rome had a famine. Um, and you see this repeated all through history when governments uh, levy wage and price controls. Um, what is often the case is that there is some sort of severe shortage of whatever is being controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the usual way things go. And so uh, the Roman Empire then winds up with uh, these terrible shortages of food um, and... Um, you know, there was, we don't know how many, but there were some, you know, large number of inhabitants, <coughs> excuse me, inhabitants of the Roman Empire who starved to death. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly was a problem uh, during the French Revolution as well. The food food issue was a big one there, wasn't it? And there yeah. was some interference with the farmers. And, uh, you know, Chen Lin, who is a partner of mine, has talked about uh, China. He's from Beijing and the history there. Of when they had uh, very bad inflationary periods of time, people were forbidden from owning gold, but they would buy it. They would, they would, they would own it anyway. They'd find a way to own it because they knew that, uh, you know, that they were, uh, that they needed to do that for their own survival. So when it comes to survival, I guess you're you're between a rock and a hard, hard place. Uh, do you see that possibility happening here? It is happening here. Some might argue. I mean, we're more and more people are having a tough, tough go of it here for sure. Yeah. Um... 
there's no doubt that the federal government believes, you know, these the federal politicians believe they have the right to control wages and prices, mm-hmm. um, because they've tried it quite a few times in American history, um, and um, I, I think it's very likely that they'll do it again. I mean, I mean, one of the prices that they have controlled since 1914 um, without without let up is interest rates. Right. Interest rates are the price of renting money. And um, they uh, have controlled it since 1914 uh, through the Federal Reserve's manipulations. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we have such um, terrible economic problems over and over again, because um, the price of money is the way that markets allocate where the money goes. And when the government manipulates the price or, or artificially holds it down or pushes it up, it sends the money in directions that it ought, ought not to go. Uh, and you wind up with businesses being created in the wrong places, doing the wrong things. Yeah, known as malinvestment to the Austrian economists, of that's course, right. that term, malinvestment. Yes, We've seen right. malinvestment in spades, certainly in the housing industry here in the U.S., and before that I would argue the dot-coms and, and telecom uh, sector as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of bad decisions made, lots of money uh, went into bad, lots of capital went into bad places um, and of course it's if you call it capital because it's it's money that's created out of nothing pumped into the system it's not really capital from an Austrian's perspective I guess it, capital is really savings isn't it uh, yeah it, it's uh, um, I don't know what you do call it come to think of it <laughs> it's a fraud uh, but uh, um, yeah I mean it, it's it's malinvestment it's a good point you make about the real estate that mm-hmm. the um, the manipulation of the interest rates, which are the price of renting money, mm-hmm. was actually an indirect way of manipulating the price of houses mm-hmm. and therefore creating too many houses in some areas and probably not enough in other areas. And that's essentially what happens when governments manipulate prices is they get too much of one thing and not enough of another. So the Romans debased their currency. They tried to finance their wars and their socialism or whatever the government wanted to do uh, to try to to curry favor or gain power uh, by clipping the coins, they debased the currency that way. So mechanically, how are we doing it now? Well, some of it is is cranked out on printing presses, and we use the term uh, printing money mm-hmm. as a short shorthand way of referring to it. But essentially, almost all of it is done through the Federal Reserve banking system by manipulating bank reserves. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't get into that in whatever happened to Penny Candy because I think it's a secondary issue. Right. Um, and uh, you can uh, you can find that information elsewhere. And sure. It's not really that important to know. All you've got to know is the government counterfeits the currency. Right. The way they do it is, is just a big subterfuge. You know, the reason the Federal Reserve exists, in my opinion, is simply to create this this huge tangled mess that nobody can understand mm-hmm. as a camouflage for what they're really doing with the money. Right. Right. What they're really doing with our resources and then of course reallocating resources from the producers of wealth, the miners, I like to say the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, people that are really doing things that are good for other people are not getting their fair share, I argue all the time and it's really being 
uh, reallocated to the politicians. It will say to the government, which gains a GDP percentage of GDP, and the bankers, which we've seen in spades. And I think one of the reasons there's so many, so much anger out there now about and against the bankers. You mentioned Gershom's Law. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners what Gershom's Law is about. Uh, Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law. Um, you know, a, a shorthand way of saying it is um, bad money drives good money out of circulation. Um, that's not exactly what Gresham said, but it's close enough for our purposes here. Mm-hmm. When people realize that some of the money that they're accepting is not as trustworthy as some of the other money that they're accepting, they um, they hang on to what they regard as the good money, and they spend the bad money. Uh, so they're getting rid of the bad money, and they're hanging on to the good money. And that's what happens um, very often in inflations. If there's some kind of money available to people that they trust more than other money, then they'll hang on t- to the trustworthy stuff, and they'll they'll sell the uh, what they regard as the trash. Yeah. Um, and and um, that's part of what's operating when uh here we get into the the, the term velocity yes um, very important right and in my opinion um velocity has become vastly more important even than the government printing the money supply mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. velocity is controlling everything these days mm-hmm. and that is explained in a couple of chapters in whatever happened to penny candy plus uh i wrote a second book on it then that was quite a while ago, because uh, I expected Velocity to become dominant, and by golly, it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's another book after whatever happened to Penny Candy that's called The Money Mystery, and it explains okay. Velocity in detail. But essentially, Velocity is a speed at which money changes hands, mm-hmm. and it is an indication of the demand for money. When people are feeling scared... They will hang on to the money in a lot of cases, and when they're they're feeling very good about their futures, they'll go ahead and spend the money. And when they are hanging on to it, let's say you know the old saying is stuffing it in the mattress. Yeah, that's the same thing as taking it out of circulation. Right, and that's deflationary. That's what's going on in the world right now. Exactly. Um, uh, huge amounts of money mm-hmm. are being created by the government, but people aren't spending it because yeah. they're scared. Now. If the government does um, do something that causes people to become optimistic, then all these trillions of dollars that have been created over the past several years that are just sitting out there will suddenly um, come into circulation. They'll start being traded, and it will have the same effect as a huge increase in the money supply. And I think, you know, I heard part of your your show before we got started here um, about, you know, what what the price of gold will go to, and several people were saying uh, $10,000 an ounce. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them were saying it could happen rather quickly. Yeah. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. If the government creates a lot of optimism so that people go out and spend a lot of money, that will have the same effect as a huge increase in the money supply. Mm-hmm. And you could see gold go to 10000 without <laughs> any trouble at all if, if the thing starts to run away, if people realize all of a sudden prices are rising fast, I'd better get rid of my money, and then they get afraid to hold the money, um, and they all start going out and dumping it for goods and services and other things that hold their values. Right. Look out! You know, I think yeah. ten thousand could happen real easily. 
Well, I think there's no doubt that there's enough money out there, uh, certainly in the banking system, but as you point out, it's not getting out. It's very much like what happened, what we read happened in the 1930s, that the money is pumped into the system, but it doesn't get lent out. I've had A. Gary Schilling on this show, who is a sort of a deflationist economist, and he's, he points out, he says, we don't print money here in the U.S. We, we put money in the banking system and it has to be lent out. Uh, Zimbabwe prints money, uh, the Weimar Republic printed money, and it seems to me that we need that they need to get the money in the hands of the masses, the people that need to put shoes in their kids' feet, that you know, the common folks, the average people. They're clearly not doing that. And I'm wondering, Richard, you know, if it might not make more sense from the establishment's point of view to keep this sort of uh pessimism out there, to keep people from from going out and, and blowing through and you know and, and just and just dumping money in the economy. Uh, because the purchasing power of the dollar remains remains strong, so to so to speak, stronger than I mean they don't want it to evaporate into nothing overnight. They don't want ten thousand dollar gold because that would mean the dollar is overnight losing its value. Mm-hmm. So there could be. I'm just wondering what you think about this idea that there could be a, a psychological war out there. I mean we're here all this you know regret about how we can't get the economy moving and this and that and Bernanke wrings his hands and sort of acts sad about it all <laughs> but in the end uh in the end the dollar you know is is Ian McAvity says the, the you know the 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 least ugly horse in the glue factory and mm-hmm. and 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 so people and we and we keep buying treasuries and pushing them over the federal reserve is buying them too i'm sure that's a big reason why the treasury rates are down mm-hmm. but isn't it really psychological you say when people are fearful it seems to me there's two ends of the spectrum there people could become fearful that prices are going to rise dramatically and then and then jump out and buy everything in sight that's another form of fear so somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. where, where people feel fairly good they might start spending more but not spending, you know, just dumping it and going crazy, right? That's possible, um, and that that's certainly what the Fed is hoping for. Hoping for, right. Um, but how often do things turn out the way the Fed hopes for? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things, uh, the points I would like to make is that, uh, you know, the laws of nature ultimately prevail. These guys, uh, the the whole notion that they, a few men can sit around a big table and, you know, some some uh, some office in, in Washington decide how much uh, money should be out there and how what the interest rate should be is 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 absurd. I mean, we'd think it'd be absurd if they were just trying to determine how many pairs of shoes should be manufactured every year, like the Soviets did. But somehow, interest rates and and money, which is half of every transaction, the, the quantity doesn't matter. It's it, it, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you talk. Uh, we have um, well, we have a little more time. I'm going to move over into the next segment a little bit. If you've got a couple more minutes, there's so much more to talk about, and uh, we, a lot of definitions that you talk about in your book: legal tender laws, fiat money. Uh, maybe you'd explain those. What the, what that means? Yeah. Okay. I I could go another five minutes or so here. Okay. Um, all right. Want to pick out one in particular you want to talk about? All right. Well, let's talk about um, let's let's go to chapter five. You talked about revolutions, elections, and printing presses. Uh, maybe you just sort of talk about that chapter a little bit. Okay. Okay. Um, are, are we going to do a commercial now? Well, or? no, no. We'll uh, okay. we'll just extend this out a couple minutes I, and then. I, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No problem. Okay. Uh, um, you, you just, just you maybe just talk about that chapter. I think it's a very important chapter. Okay, uh, let's see. I'm trying to re- Okay, here we go. I'm, uh, well, I guess it's, you know, the money is printed, it, it's, it finances all kinds of things, right? And mm-hmm. so, um. Oh, okay, I see, yeah. 
All right, I, I'm refreshing my mind. It's been a long time since I wrote the book. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, um, that chapter talks about the fact that, that there are fundamentally two different reasons why governments uh, counterfeit money. One is in dictatorships. The dictator is um, already probably hated by a lot of the population, and so uh, dictators are always afraid of getting killed. And um, they are afraid that if they raise taxes very much, uh, they're going to uh, wind up triggering off a revolution. Mm -hmm. So they will go ahead and print money as a surreptitious way of stealing from the people. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, getting back to John Maynard Keynes' remark, you know, not one man in a million understands what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So you have dictators print it in order to avoid revolutions. And then in democracies... Um, they print it, um, I think it, it would be fair to say, um, because it's the only way they can possibly cover their, their, uh, their bills, because mm -hmm. they, you know, every politician has to go to the people with this lie that, um, you know, I will give you what you want if you vote for me, and mm -hmm. I'll make somebody else pay for it. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's, he's saying that to you and me, but then he goes down the block to our neighbors and he says the same thing to them. <laughs> so uh, he, he's going to rob you and me to subsidize them, and he's going to rob them to subsidize you and me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that only goes just so far. And uh, they, they issue so many promises to, to win these elections. There's just no possible way they can get the money to... Um, finance all of these promises that they've made other than to print the stuff mm -hmm. and and so that's why democracies print money uh, just because there is such a supply of promises out there and there's no other way to cover those promises yeah well they uh, obviously uh, you can't fool mother nature and that's what they're trying to do we have uh, what you, what we call legal tender laws you talk in early in your book you show uh, again you ask people to pull out uh, the money from their pockets and look at it. I have actually, Richard, um, a silver certificate, a $5 silver certificate somewhere in my possession that would have allowed, I think before 1964, would have allowed me to take that to the bank and get five silver dollars for it, a $5 mm -hmm. bill. Mm -hmm. um, we have what legal tender laws, I know Ron Paul has talked about repealing the legal tender laws so that gold could compete freely with uh, with paper, perhaps you could just talk about that concept uh, briefly before we uh, conclude our discussion today. Right. Um, you know, as as uh, you you and I have talked before, we both believe in Austrian economics, sure. which is the alternative to Keynesian economics. And one of the things the Austrians uh, push um, pretty hard um, is that there ought to be a free market in money. Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted to accept something as money, then that's up to you. You should be able to do that. And if I want to accept something different as money, then that's up to me. And and we work out a deal with the people right. that we're buying and selling with. Well, um, you know, all through history, gold and silver have, have come out as the kings of money and have been chosen. And um, the Austrians are saying that's the real solution to this whole mess that we're in is just let people start choosing what they're going to use as money and let gold and silver be out there circulating along with other currencies 
and um, you know we'll see what people decide uh, works best. And right. uh, what we'll do is we'll repeat history because that's what happened uh, in the history of mankind: is people just tried all sorts of different kinds of money, and they wound up with gold and silver as being the best. And my guess is that would happen again if governments would let it happen. Right. But, of course, they're not likely to let it happen uh, unless they're forced to in some way. Yeah. Because that, uh, as Alan Greenspan himself um, uh, very well understood in his uh, Golden Economic Freedom essay of uh, 1966 that he wrote, uh, that that's why governments hate gold is because it gets in the way of that that theft, that scheme of counterfeiting, that scheme of theft that they uh, use, and they mm-hmm. take our property from us. Well, Richard, uh, you know, you said, as John Maynard Keynes said, not one and a million, I think it was the ratio, uh-huh. understand what's going on. I would say that that ratio is probably somewhat higher now, thanks to whatever happened to Penny Candy, because you do explain it very, very well. Okay. And I want to just really encourage my listeners as much as possible Folks, give a call to 800-509-5400, 800-509-5400, and order this this uh, wonderful book, Whatever Happened to Penny Candy. It's a paperback book. Uh, as I said, the former Treasury Secretary William Simon endorsed it. Doug Casey uh, thinks it's better than any textbook you can read, and it's easy to read. It's easy to understand. Uh, it is absolutely excellent. A lot of illustrations, pictures, and things in there that also, and great quotes from our founding fathers in that book. Richard, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it is really great to have you again, and I hope we can come back and talk about some of your other books because you've written a number of them, and you talked about a couple of them today. Just mentioned a couple that we want to explore as well sometime in the near future. So thanks so much for being with us. Look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Very, very, always fun talking with you, and I think always educational for me and for our listeners, so thank you. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some ideas about some mining companies that I think look very promising. I'll be talking to you about in just uh, the other side of the break, so don't go away. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. 
Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Hard times into good times. I'm your host Jay Taylor, and uh, I just want to suggest again that you uh, that you check out RichardMayberry.com. Uh, RichardMayberry.com. Whatever happened to Penny Candy is the book we're talk we talked a little bit about today. We introduced to you. There's so much more in that book. Uh, no, I'm not getting a commission uh, for selling this book. I'm not getting a penny for doing it. I just uh, believe in in what Richard is talking about here, and it's a matter of of wanting to share that uh, that belief and that uh, that view with everybody else, uh, read it, take a look at it. Unless you're a PhD in economics, you probably can't understand it. It's too basic. It's too fundamental. It's too common sense. And you will have, if you're a PhD in economics, you probably have your head in the clouds with some mathematical formula that uh, will give you sort of an arrogant view that you can fix everything and you can dictate to the world. Uh, what the interest rates should be and how much money should be created and, and uh, how many pairs of shoes should be manufactured even. I mean, this is what Keynesian economics teaches. Uh, this is the antithesis of, of freedom and uh, free market economics. We've moved so far away from it for reasons I think Richard talked about briefly. So I just can't encourage you enough to uh, go to richardmayberry.com and lots of other books. We'll be talking to him about some of the others as well. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about the economy today, uh, about some of the other market letter writers and their views on the markets, and um, just a couple of them here that I think are, are really worth talking about. Arch Crawford, uh, Crawford's Perspectives, uh, I just uh, read something from his August 6th letter. Uh, he's, uh, he's saying, Joe Granville gave, me a re- uh, gave a renewed May Day sell signal on May 1, Richard Russell of Dow Theory forecasts uh, received a renewed Dow Theory sell in mid-May, and Crawford Perspectives doubled down on the short side on July 18th uh, on Mars opposition Uranus cycle high. A renewed Hindenburg Omen sell was given on July 24th, and the Bradley model registered a minor cycle high of July 28th. We may be wrong because the markets can do anything, but we're in some uh, but we're in some darn fine company as to, uh, as to our outlook. Older, wiser, and often right against crowds of others who disagree. Oddly, some of the most right and respected economists espouse our same opinion from their fundamental perspectives. When the technical and fundamentalists agree, it's usually in the second wave down in a bear market. We have mentioned before that these same daily headlines would have brought down prices mightily in previous and saner times. Well, that certainly seems to be the case. And 
Richard Russell talks about uh, that that same makes that same point in a, a newsletter that he wrote yesterday, in which he talked about the uh, the Dow theory, uh, which suggests that the Dow uh, really, in order for the well, he gave a Dow theory sell signal, and in order for that to be refuted, we need to see the Dow rise above thirteen thousand two hundred and seventy nine. Uh, the Dow closed today uh, at 13,168, so it's closed. But we need to see the Dow rise above that level and the transports rise above their level uh, of 5,285.97. Those were the highs in May, 5,285.97 for the transports. Russell uh, says that normally when these Dow theory sell signals were put into place in the past, you would see very quickly a very substantial decline in uh, in the Dow and in other uh, other other markets, uh, equity markets, but this time it's not. My sense is that it is such a controlled market, it's such a psychological market that's based so much on um, on hope uh, and liquidity that's being pumped in the system that you have people really holding out hope that that uh, and believing in the system and still believing, even though the evidence is is clear to me anyway, and to a lot of my colleagues, certainly the Austrian uh, people of Austrian economic thought, that the system is failing, that the policies are failed, they failed in the 1930s, they're failing again, and yet that is the hope of the establishment that they can somehow keep this thing going and keep that velocity uh, uh, somewhere in the middle that Richard Bayberry talked about, keeping people believing uh, in the system and keeping them away from gold because if they start to see people running into gold and out of the dollar, that could be the end of it. I, I believe that's very, very possible, um, and that is what people are really, what the establishment is afraid of. And so it's very, very important not to have people go on BNN and other channels and talk about uh, manipulation of gold markets because they want us to believe that, that things are working out all right. Uh, reading the Elliott Wave financial forecast as well in August, and I quote, this is the bottom line or the summary of the letter, the stock market is at the forefront of a major wave down. The rally from June 4th has traced out a distinctive, a distinctly corrective structure, uh, making it a rebound, uh, marking, I'm sorry, making it a rebound in a larger downtrend. The downtrend is reasserting control over prices with significant declines ahead. The world's central banks plead to stem the bearish tide, but each pronouncement of a new easy money ploy only greases the slope of hope, which all bear markets descend. Central bank lending rates have been uh, at or near zero for the past four years, yet world economies remain weak. In fact, many are contracting again, and deflationary pressures are increasing, so safety is a paramount concern. And, and certainly, uh, end of quote, and certainly that is what Richard Mayberry was talking about when he talked about velocity shrinking, uh, the deflation and the fear uh, of, of deflation, and in fact, the reality of deflation in terms of uh, the credit markets for sure, certainly a reality, and people running to treasuries uh, for fear of, uh, of solvency, actually. Uh, it's a, it is a world of insolvency, I believe, and it makes sense that people are going, in my way of thinking, to... Um, to, to the uh, to the treasury markets. Now we also uh, would like to read here from um, Lowry's uh, Tuesday morning summary because I think if you're looking at the equity markets and looking at the fundamentals of the equity markets, there's nobody that really does a better job than 
than the, than the Lowry report, and this is what they had to say this morning about this this market. And I, again, the the Dow did go up uh, today, went up 51 points, Nasdaq up 25, uh, and the S and P was up as well. But still, uh, not breaking through that barrier, both the Dow and the transports need to rise in order to overcome uh, Richard Russell's uh, uh, Dow theory sell signal. But anyway, here's what the Lowry people said today uh, in their report. They said, the bottom line is the mediocre quality of yesterday's rally suggests Friday's big gains did not represent the start of a significant move higher for the market. Demand was clearly lacking yesterday, given the relatively low percent of up volume and, more importantly, the lack of dynamic gains in buying power and short-term index. At the same time, all the major price indexes are testing levels of potentially substantial supply, which makes yesterday's apparent lack of demand even more significant. In addition, short-term indicators are now at overbought levels, suggesting the rally is extended and, as such, particularly vulnerable to a rise in supply. There are also indications buying has become selective, given the failure of indicators such as the percentage of Lowry stocks above their 10-day moving average to confirm the, late, the latest highs in the price index. A similar pattern is evident in the decreasing number of 52-week highs on the NYSE from 296 July 3rd to 250 on July 17th to 248 on July 27th and finally 210 yesterday. In sum, while upside momentum could carry prices a little further, the risk of a new move to the downside appears to be significantly outweigh any potential rewards for whatever further gains the market can squeeze out over the near term. End of quote. Clearly a very bearish view from the Lowry and the fundamentals, really, um, of this equity market, which is, which is very, very weak. Well, I think the equity market is very weak. Uh, the, certainly, though, one of the things that I'm finding some encouragement in is the, uh, the, the gold index, the Toronto Gold Index, Today finished 8.46 higher at 296.09. It looks to me like we could have a successful test uh, and a double bottom in the um, junior gold share uh, sector. Uh, and we are going to go to a break here as soon as we come back. I'm going to talk to you about a few uh, gold shares uh, and actually a, a, an oil company as well, a sponsor of this show, and talk about a couple of the sponsors. I'm also going to talk about uh, some other fundamentals in the gold share market. Uh, that are very, very promising, I think. I do believe Rick Rule's uh, discussion a few weeks back in which he talked about consolidation in the gold share market is starting to pan out. I think we're seeing signs of a very healthy consolidation. There are just way too many junior mining companies out there that can't raise capital in this market and uh, uh, the high-risk capital, and I have been stating all along my preference for companies that are producing gold that have cash flow that they can grow organically from, companies that don't have to go out and uh, raise capital at pennies per share and dilute the shareholders from here to kingdom come, but basically the ability to grow organically. And those are the companies that are now in a position to start gobbling up the illiquid companies, the companies that can't raise capital, and we're seeing then uh, good management teams, good financings come together, and after 10 years of exploration, we're now seeing some real results and some real good mining projects starting to emerge. And one of them, certainly, uh, one of the most exciting companies that uh, I have on my list and one that I'm fortunate enough to own some shares of personally is uh, GoldQuest. Uh, we will talk about GoldQuest and some other ideas as soon as we come back uh, from the commercial break. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I just uh, want to mention a few names uh, in the mining sector and uh, one in the energy sector. We just uh, heard a commercial from uh, about Arroway. Uh, this is a company that, uh, a, a nice little company that's earned uh, six cents a share over the first nine months of this year, selling at about 50, uh, I guess about 60 cents. Uh, yeah, about, uh, actually 56 cents. 54 million shares outstanding and selling it uh, at 56 cents. We did recommend it in the newsletter at 48 cents. I really like this company because it is uh, growing very very nicely. It's it's a small company, but uh, the infrastructure is in place. Uh, they are drilling eight wells now. I expect that they were going to have a fairly dramatic increase in production of oil and gas this year, especially shutting in the gas because of the low prices. The last I heard, they will. Uh, if prices keep rising, they'll start selling gas, but that earnings is, is really based on oil. It is more of an oil-rich deposit and uh, production than it is gas, but the, the infrastructure's there, the pipelines in northern Alberta, uh, it's a safe jurisdiction, obviously, to operate in. Uh, nice little growth company uh, selling at relatively low multiples of successful, low-risk wells that are being drilled. A nice little company that I think uh, you, you probably will do very well with if you buy it at these levels. No guarantees ever, of course, in uh, in life and especially in the equity markets, but it is uh, it is a nice little company doing very nicely with cash flow. Uh, Eurostar Gold Corp., uh, another sponsor to this show, uh, I did recommend this stock in my newsletter as well, and it's more than doubled. This is a company that uh, is currently selling. Well, I didn't check it, but it was up a little bit today. There is apparently some um, some possibilities of a takeover attempt on this company. They have 
some properties in Mexico that look very, very good. I like the company because it has, uh, because of its strong management team and I think very strong backing, financial backing behind it, but also because it has two excellent properties in Mexico. And one of those properties uh, is located between uh, a couple of, well, one producer, a company that's producing about 150,000 uh, ounces or so a year um, in Mexico, and they're sort of surrounding this company. I think there's a possibility that um, Eurostar could be a takeover target. In fact, they have now hired a company uh, con- to, uh, con- uh, consulting firm to help them arrange or, or discuss and, and uh, uh, provide the best possible deal if there is a, a takeover attempt. Uh, they are also very close uh, to a, a second major gold producer down in that part of Mexico, and then they have a project in the northwest in Mexico that also is, uh, would be their flagship property. But anyway, a good little company, Eurostar Star Gold Corp. And again, again, it was a recommendation in my newsletter, uh, one that's done done very well. Another company that uh, is a sponsor of this company uh, to this show that I think is very very good is uh, looking good to me anyway is Liberty Silver. Now they are in a uh, in an effort to take over another company, uh, and if uh, if that happens, I think it will make this company even better. Um, well, like they do have one advanced stage project uh, in Nevada called uh, uh, it's called Trinity the Trinity Silver Mine. Uh, a lot of good drill results coming out of that. They are earning this project from Renaissance Gold, which is a a, proje- a, a company that I do have recommended in my newsletter. They think very highly of, but. Uh, but uh, Liberty Silver looks like a like a nice company as well with good strong management, um, and I think if they are successful in their efforts to acquire Senan Resources, I think that will be a big positive for this company as well. So that's another one that I think looks really uh, really good right now. Um, I do I have not recommended that one yet in my newsletter, but I am taking a look at it and certainly. If they are successful in picking up um, sen and resources, it, it could very well become a recommendation in my newsletter. Also, perhaps the most exciting stock that I have seen in quite some time is uh, GoldQuest Mining. Uh, this is a company that I was fortunate to buy some shares in, recommended it in my newsletter uh, some time ago. But, you know, it was one of those that was selling at $0.07 cents to start the year. And I thought, my goodness, what am I doing with this stock? Another loser. And then they came through and had a discovery hole in the Dominican Republic. Uh, hole number 90 was 230 meters, grade 2.4 grams per ton gold, and uh, 14, uh, 44% copper. And the second hole was a 25-foot, 25-meter step out, uh, was 159 meters, 4.45 grams of gold and 1% copper. And the third step out to the other direction, 25 meters, was 4.5 grams, over 258 meters, 4.5 grams of gold and 1.3% copper. These are unbelievable numbers, and this is a company I think could be off to the races. Something really big happening there. Very possibly, uh, the stock was at $1.60 earlier today. Not sure where it ended up, but it is a very exciting story, and it shows that when companies make these major discoveries, these little penny stocks can really fly like crazy. Uh, and that, of course, is one of the exciting parts of it. We haven't had many of these to talk about recently, but I believe that Rick Rule is right. Uh, we're at that sweet spot now when everybody is down on the gold shares and all these good, uh, lots of good things happening now after 10 years of exploration and development. And so it is a very exciting time, I think, for 
the gold mining sector, and uh, certainly the fundamentals are in place for gold, as we just discussed throughout most of this uh, hour. Well, uh, our time is up. I do want to tell you that next week I will be traveling uh, with my wife in Portugal. Um, we're taking a little vacation. I'll be doing some work, too, along the way. But next week, I'm going to have Ed Griffin and Ron Paul on this show. We'll be doing replays of discussions I've had with them in the past. So we hope that you'll tune in and listen to Ed Griffin, Creature of Jekyll Island, and Ron Paul. Of course, everyone knows Ron. In closing, I want to thank Tacey Trump, uh, my producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Till next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.